Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Welcome to the show. This is Joshua Nicholson, Cybersecurity America. Today's episode is going to be on a new paradigm for security testing. The days of just simple penetration testing are over with. What do you look for in what we call a breach attack simulation offering? Today, we have one of our Deep Seas partners with us, Ben Fink, and we're going to go over his background. But before we do that, we're going to pass it over to Aaron Beerland for our weekly cybersecurity threat assessment or briefing. Aaron. Thanks, Josh. Just a couple of things to point out for this week for the intelligence briefing. But the largest one is that there's been some information that's been released in regards to the LastPass breach that's occurred. We saw two of them actually happen. One was in August of 2022, and then the other was in December of 2022, where the source code of LastPass had been breached, as well as some customer vault information. And this was a big deal because obviously a lot of organizations use something like LastPass. There's a lot of CEOs and senior leaders that have a lot of different, a lot of different that they have to keep. And so they would use something like a password manager. And so this was a very large and prolific breach that occurred that made a lot of people very nervous about whether or not those types of security managers were truly secure. And with the information that we have coming out from LastPass, though it is relatively limited, which is to be expected from a company admitting to a breach, one of the things that they pointed out was the entire breach came because the personal computer of a senior DevOps manager was compromised. And supposedly it was compromised through media software. Now, some assumptions are being made that this media software was something like Plex, which is a media sharing software that a lot of people have on their personal computers for streaming movies and streaming playlists and audio. But this was the way that the threat actor was able to get in to LastPass. They violated a either a vulnerability or through a breach that occurred with Plex itself, they were able to get onto the senior DevOps manager's computer. Then using key logging software and an info stealer, they were able to get the AWS keys that allowed them to access the Amazon S3 bucket that contained password vault information. So this was a almost large scale and in a sense, a supply chain attack that occurred. Whether or not the threat actor had the intent at all times to violate LastPass, we're not sure, but it's entirely possible that this threat actor just violated Plex or whatever media streaming software they had violated, found out that they were on the computer of a DevOps manager of something as large as LastPass, and then took that and pivoted to then violate that information and be able to take the source code as well as that customer password vault from that Amazon S3 bucket. These are the ways that threat actors are thinking now. They're looking big picture and they're trying to find ways that they can get the most victims as possible, then parse through those victims to find where the real money is at. Who has the access that I want? 
who works for a financial company, who maybe works for a research firm that's conducting really intense research where I would be able to get some personal information that's worth a ton of money, something that might be might be either classified, not necessarily classified, but confidential. What are ways that they can be able to get through and get that kind of information in these large scale attacks? And we're seeing a lot of that with the way that threat actors are pivoting, trying to find these kind of big fish. I know that I reported a few weeks back on code repositories. We've seen a lot of stuff come out of PyPy as well as GitHub. These are code repositories where threat actors want to inject malicious code, get as many victims as possible through that supply chain of an application, and then just go through the data and see who the big fish are that they can then violate. The second thing that I want to bring up is there was once again, another large scale ransomware operation that happened to hit the U.S. Marshals Service. It appears that the U.S. Marshals Service has admitted that an unknown actor conducted a ransomware operation against them, and a lot of PI was released as part of this ransomware this ransomware incident. Now, they are saying that there are aspects of their program, the classified aspects as well as the protection program, have not been violated, but it does show a weakness that we know exists within our own United States government, and the amount of kind of data that's collected by these government agencies is it as secure as we would like to think it is? We all expect people in our the technology we use in our daily lives, like Google or our bank, to really secure our personally identifiable information. But what happens when the United States government gets violated? What kind of information have they collected? What if it was a, a, a different a different entity of the government, like the IRS or even the United States Postal Service in some ways? When we talk about data privacy and data protection, we have to think about how are government agencies securing our information? What are they doing to make sure that we're kept safe, to make sure our data is kept safe? They are the entity that requires a lot of these other technology companies to have very strict rules in data handling and data processing, as well as very strict rules in the encryption thereof. But what happens when the government itself gets violated? And what happens when that P gets leaked out? We all know that especially now with what's going on with tension between Russia, Ukraine, the United States government, we've already seen the government get targeted by pro-Russia or Russia itself entities with either DDoS attacks or ransomware attacks or some wiper ransomware that we've wiperware that we've seen deployed out. So now that the government is this large of a target, what are they doing to protect our information and the confidential information that the United States government has to handle on a daily basis? These are things that need to be focused on because that threat landscape is only going to get bigger as these tensions arise going past that one year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine and a lot of the rhetoric that we're seeing being pushed out right now by the United States government. So I anticipate we're going to see more governmental targeting. And the question is, is what is this going to do to change how the government approaches data, how the government approaches its own security, as well as how they project those thoughts onto the security of other organizations like the ones that we deal with every single day at Deep Seas. That's interesting. But pending any questions, that's all I have for Intel. So you'd really say that the supply chain is really something that's being targeted right now. You probably see more disruption. I could see a conflict between United States and China over Taiwan. There's nothing but supply chain between us and China and all the ramifications of that. And so it's interesting to see, as well as I think some of the other aspects of we don't even know where some of the complexity, some of the software is at in these third parties, fourth parties, we have fifth parties and so forth. It's really interesting to try and get your hands around 
how interdispersed and how actually how integrated we are from a technology perspective globally. And could you actually really map out the global supply chain and what its risk is? It's just too complicated to do. This is really interesting. I, no- I noticed I didn't I saw the article on the Marshall Service. I didn't know it was ransomware based, but that was like a week after the FBI was compromised. Wasn't the FBI compromised? Had some scissors. Was it ransomware as well, or was the FBI something different? I'd have to I'd have to check. I know that there were dark web releases with regards to the FBI, but I'm not sure if I saw specifically what type of implant was used, whether it was ransomware or if it was just data exfiltration. But that does add to the assessment that the US government's a major target. And we know it always is, but it's getting a lot worse and it's getting far more sophisticated because, as you said, not just Russia, right? That's the big news story, but China as well. There's a lot of increasing rhetoric around China. And these are both our top nation state actors. And so we have to anticipate the U.S. government's going to be a very viable target. Yeah. Or industry supporting that. I mean, you could have reporters that are in the field that are trying to report. And you can see where nation state Russian actors, the GRU, would want to know who their contacts are, who's got access to them, would want to penetrate different systems of some of the news agencies and media just to gather intelligence. And these companies don't have defensive the government level of resources that they can address that it's it becomes really challenging and that's a lot of times where we step into it and so i would take it you would see more of these devops type security risks i think that's a new frontier because i think security really hasn't focused on devops a lot in the past it was more traditional network-based ids edr type solutions but we really never got our hands around DevOps. It was usually the development team had access to it and the permissions. We may do some with the authentication authorization with the groups, but for the most part, it's not an area we've dealt heavily in. I think the very in, the intelligent way, for lack of a better term, if you are a threat actor and you want to get the biggest, for lack of a better term, bang for your buck, then focusing on violating applications is how you get the most victims and sometimes the greatest access. Especially when something's in development, you have a lot of people that have administrative access and the ability to inject something directly into the source code. And as we know, because we want everything to be agile and particularly we want things to be cheap, people use a lot of these large scale code repositories to fill in the gaps of a lot of the simple measures that we take when building applications. So being able to go in and inject code into a really popular Python library or a really popular GitHub repository is almost the perfect way for you to be able to then have a bunch of victims because somebody loads that code in for a simple process as coloring a button or creating a splash background or something in an application. And then suddenly you have access to a myriad of applications, and sometimes they could be everything from banking software to even something possibly even used by the United States government. These are great leverage points, and threat actors know that, so they're trying to find ways that they'd be able to inject into those codes. And the reason why is it's extremely expensive to do code level analysis, to be able to take every single application that you're going to load onto your infrastructure and do a code level analysis to make sure it's all good. Nobody has that kind of budget or that time if they want to remain an agile business and threat actors know that. So they're finding every way they can to leverage that kind of vulnerability. And that vulnerability exists specifically because we don't have the people or the money to fund it. Yeah. It was like, what was that threat? It was a while back. It was based on SSL decryption algorithms in the library were compromised. And everyone who used that, we needed to deprecate that. I can't remember what the attack name was for that. 
but it was essentially the exact same thing. You have a library that everyone's using in their applications, which they believe is secure and they're using it for secure reasons, but that library gets compromised and now you have it in multiple systems. And how do you know that? And how do you take it out? And when you talk about attack surface reduction, how many times are libraries a part of an ASR program to update or patch? Cisco iOS devices are, desktops, so forth. But the libraries, how many people are looking at libraries that DevOps is using? Very few, if any. So I think it's going to be a challenge moving forward, like you say, especially in the distributed cloud nature. Exactly. We appreciate it, Aaron. Thanks for the briefing and you have a good day, sir. You as well, Josh. Thanks. Today, we have a really special guest with us today. Today is Ben Fink. And Ben has over 20 years of experience in running and managing enterprise-scale security programs. He has spent his career in multiple leadership roles in information security, including running a security practice for a managed service provider. In this role, Ben provided security consulting and day-to-day network defensive operations for dozens of organizations from Fortune 500 to software as a service providers and the U.S. government organizations. Ben also founded the assessment practice for several national service providers, delivering PCI, QSA, and other compliance audit services, as well as vulnerability management, network penetration testing, and web application security testing. Ben has also implemented threat threat management and security testing programs at over a dozen large organizations, developing solutions to provide a safe and resilient enterprise. Now, in 2016, Ben co-founded a company named OnDefend, where he currently serves as the chief technology officer. Ben is also the creator of Blindspot, and Blindspot is a purple team testing automation tool. He regularly consults on information security as well as defense and depth practices. You can see him throughout the Southeast and as a co-organizer of the B-Size JAX, which is Jacksonville, Florida Information Security Conference. Now, Ben has a bachelor's of, of science degree in computer science from Florida State University. Currently holds a CISP and a PCI and other professional certifications. Ben is not only passionate about protecting his clients from a successful cybersecurity incident, but is also driven to share his knowledge with others and peers. Welcome to the show, Ben. It's great to have you today. Oh, thanks, Josh. Really excited to be here. Always love talking to Air Force guys. You have a different (laughs) different vernacular than us Marines, right? A different background, some different training. We just come with different perspective, but it's all pretty needed. For some reason, y'all make fun of us and say we eat crayons. We never, I never understood that because <laughs> I've never seen crayons my entire time in the morning. Never saw a box of crayons. Never so, saw a box of crayons. No, don't know how that's a thing that's associated. But if that's the worst thing, I'll live with it. That So my experience with the Marines on an Air Force base, just briefly, I was on an Air Force base doing some training one time. It happened to be in the Gulf area, the, the Gulf of Mexico in, in Mississippi. There was a hurricane coming, so we were being evacuated. So I'm there for training, so I've got all my suitcases and stuff I'm coming in. And there were some Marines that happened to be there. So as I'm going to the building where we're getting evacuated to, I show up with all these suitcases, like a like some kind of a, like a musician or something, like a performing artist. And uh, the Marines come running out, and they're like helping me with my luggage. And I think they pretty much gave the Marines like two MREs, a knife, and a roll of duck tape. And that was it when I come in like Diana Ross or something. A lot of respect for the Marines, for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, I have my son is Air Force ROTC. So I don't know where I went wrong here. Try to Good get for him. a Marine, but you never know. But tell me, so you've been doing this for a while. I've been knowing you for about three, three and a half years now. It's been a yeah. couple of years. We've been working t- together. We've known on Defend and your product Blindspot. We use that and it's been just a real successful tool set. So I wanted to pick your brain on a few things, Ben. And I want to talk about breach attack simulation and what that is and how that's a new paradigm. But also, did is there any part of your bio that I left out or I didn't cover? 
No, that was exhausting hearing that though. Apparently we've done a few things. I think what's been really, I've just been really fortunate to be able to be at the right place at the right time to work on some really great projects and to interact with some really great people. And so what what we try to do at OnDefend and what we've been doing since 2016 is getting a chance to work with as many customers as we can, mostly to learn like what, like when you are actually like in at the tactical level of doing the defending. We just listened to all the stuff that Aaron brought us on our Threat Intel briefing. It is tough to defend an organization that is using computers to process all this sensitive information. We're trying to get out there like, what is it that we can help them do to help them understand where the gaps are? And so that's really been the focus for the last few years and was the genesis of the blind spot tool. I, as I think back on my career, it's been a successive ser- series of more understanding where the gaps still exist so that we can figure out how to fix them, right? And that using that perspective, as opposed to being like overwhelmed by the number of security defensive tools we have, and then not having any time to stop, look around. And, are we actually doing a thing that's helpful here yeah. to what the business of the organization is? Yeah. And we see this too on customer sites too, is that there's just a number of tools, like they're overloaded with tools because it would, if an audit finding would come out and they would think the solution to that was another tool that does that. Buy another tool, right? Yeah. Be tools, but none of them are reporting right. None of them are viewed by the security operations center. None of the use cases are developed right. It's So now you're seeing a lot of, we call them Tracy's technology rationalization projects, right? Yeah. We're looking at, or you have three different EDRs, you have two, three different SIMs, you got this tool, you got that tool. And then getting to something's manageable and then be able to shift those dollars to something else. So tell me, let's start off with the 2022 year. And what have you seen that kind of a lessons learned? There's some things you and I had worked on at Log4J and solar winds. There's a lot of stuff that every cybersecurity person in the world worked on during those time period. But uh, what was your thoughts on what you gained from 2022? Yeah, so 2022 was an amazing year. And I think, although it wasn't technically 2022, I guess we could lump Log4J into that year because it came out like December, end of December 2021 was when all of it happened, right? Yeah, yeah. So everybody's trying to enjoy their end of the year holiday. And then all of a sudden, we have this major thing. So I thought Aaron's Threat Intel briefing was spot on. I think 2022 was the year that a lot of people who have been talking about this for a while we saw the supply chain problem really become entrenched as possibly the biggest problem that we're going to have to focus. It could because it's the delivery vehicle for so many attacks. I actually just published an article in Forbes about this, and it's a series. I don't know when the next ones will be published, but it's a series of these because from our perspective, there's a lot of supply chain stuff, right? We could talk about it from in the midst of the pandemic when there was hardware supply chains of not having enough equipment to meet the demand the organization had. That's a totally different supply chain. But if we talk about software supply chains, there's what sounds like maybe the last pass folks had where a finished product that we all rely on at being last pass, right? That helps us manage a critical asset in our information security programs itself is compromised, right? So there's a lot of places where the last pass is the link in the supply chain that allows a lot of businesses to securely, or at least we thought, share information, right? Including things like passwords, API keys, and all that other stuff. And now it turns out, I don't think today's update talked about that so much or the update that came out most recently, but there was stuff in the vaults that you would store, like metadata about the password, the site itself that their password was for. That apparently was not encrypted. Only the actual passwords were, which is insane. Like you think the whole thing will be encrypted and it'll make it a lot harder for an attacker to take use of. So I think we also see a lot of these malicious libraries that are coming in now, right? For web apps. I think you pointed out very astutely that there's a lot of companies that are just 
gab- grabbing these libraries and sticking them in their app so they can like leapfrog ahead. Well, there's a cost to that. It's because we're putting these things in that are just coming from open source libraries that we don't know who maintains these. We don't know when those people will suddenly get busy doing something else. They don't have time for an open source project that pays them nothing. And all they do is get a lot of like really nasty comments on their GitHub issues page about, hey, this is broken, or how come you haven't implemented this feature yet? And I'm doing this for free. And so they walk away. Somebody will step up and say, hey, I'll take that project over. And next thing you know, they're inserting all kinds of malicious content into a library in use by lots of people. That happens all the time. So we think about it from a lot of different perspectives. And I think what we are seeing now is that threat actors are recognizing that like email used to be the easy path in. This is a much more like I can backdoor one of these libraries or apps and I can just wait and I will get a lot more information and I might strike on something super valuable down the road that I might not even be targeting right away. So I think that's going to be a problem. It's going to make it very difficult for organizations and government agencies who are trying to maintain security. Like how do you vet this commercial off-the-shelf application, right? You have to get like a complete bill of software bill of materials, and SBOM, which I don't, I have not seen very many organizations offer that. And when they do, it feels like it's very like thrown together and not really well organized. So I think that's going to be a capability we're going to have to build. But I don't know how you would go through and open up. That was really what made Log4J so difficult. You brought up a great point. Like if it's a Cisco router, I can scan that and I can see it's this version. I know inst- instantly that that's not the new one. I need the new one. But Log4J is a component in a compiled application that unless you have access to that source code. You can't scan a running app and know for sure whether there's Log4J in there. You have to go back to the source code that requires a lot of discipline that previously hasn't been a part of a development organization. So that's a challenge too. And so as we move to these this DevOps world where everything is infrastructure as code and all these libraries are coming in, a lot of the security technologies that we're used to using are going away. And so we have to be able to adapt and and put something else in there because the information is just moving with it, right? So all the stuff we used to protect with the sort of castle moat, like ideology is gone as that stuff moves there. So I think 2022 for me was the year that the supply chain attack really moved from something that a few people were warning about to something that it's very obvious that this is going to be a significant problem moving forward, right? We also saw, I think the proliferation or the continued proliferation of a lot of nation state level threat actors, whether they were actually backed by a nation state or not, it's debatable, but their capabilities continuing to expand. At the right. Yeah. Like they have the resources to go through and develop a lot of, of either zero day type vulnerabilities, or they have the ability to build tradecraft that gets around a lot of the standard detection mechanisms we have. And so that we're continuing to see that. I still, I think I, I read a report recently that said that the payments to ransomware was down in 2022. Yeah. Uh, but that was <clears throat> that I, we'll see if that's a sustaining trend or not, because that would be one of the first times we've seen an indicator moving down in that direction, which would be amazing. But I think that might be more of an aberration at this point in the data. So I was told that correlated to the Conti ransomware group that imploded. Oh, uh, yeah. Russian that makes sense. Explosion. And then so that took out a major <laughs> multi-million dollar cyber. When one of the big players goes away, there is a little hiccup in the market. Yeah. Yeah, like you're going to pay. And I saw that article in Forbes, man. Congratulations for, uh, Thanks. for that. Yeah. It's a lot I, of fun. I, I, I'm trying to write it to be broad, help help a lot of people figure this out, right? 
Oh, yeah. And you look at supply chain risk. You also have API, malicious APIs, which are libraries. So you can have organizations say, here's a security tool. Just integrate to our API. Here you go. And it actually be a proxy malicious API. There's a couple different areas I could see for that, especially in cloud-based. Everything's cloud nowadays. So you have to create APIs for everything. used to be you had a connection. You'd have to get a firewall permit. You'd have something on DMZ. You can map it. You can see the log traffic coming across. Now, you can still see API calls within the logs, like in Guard Duty and so forth, but you still, it's still not yeah. the paradigm as it used to be. Oh, totally agree. And that whole, the infrastructure is code and like suddenly being able to create a new data service and run it. So as a security team, one of the challenges we see a lot of our customers have is they don't know what's supposed to be running in the cloud environment. They just see a lot of stuff in there. So if a threat actor gained access to it, because let's say that you, I wonder if this is what happened to that last pass engineer. He probably had a lot of stored credential information on his machine, like his access to those like tokens and SSH keys and those sorts of things. Once they have it, now they're showing up as a real user doing all these things. Like, I guess we're allowed to spin these things up. It happens all the time that we see the infrastructure used by companies for real, a threat actor will gain access to, and they might, while they might be interested in the information, sometimes they're just interested in the raw compute power and the capabilities there. So they'll spin up some machines to do their stuff. Sometimes it's as boring as being like crypto miners. Sometimes it's more interesting, like you find out like a a legit company is hosting somebody else's command and control nodes, which is obviously embarrassing for that company. I had that at a financial institution in New York City when I was working for EMY. And the threat actors had compromised the Cloudera orchestration level of that. So they were able to provision OSs at will. And so it was interesting that whole orchestration level had all control over the virtual machines. He could provision, he could provision serverless connections, everything. And that was compromised and they were in that. And so while we get greater orchestration, we also have data, greater fear of getting into the wrong hands and their ability to do stuff like that. Right. And so that is an issue. And then from a supply chain perspective, just uh, when you look at what the pandemic did. I mean, my garage door broke, for instance, in six months, still couldn't get a spring for the garage door because it was on a ship somewhere. When you look at all these different components and the risks that it has and what that's done just with the war in Russia and Ukraine, what's that done to supply chains? I think it's really hard to predict the future. And that might be one of the big reasons inflation where everybody's, I don't know where I'm going to get more of these springs over here. So I'm going to make $500 a spring instead of the next time. And so I think the supply chain disruption causes massive inflation too as well as well as other factors but we could see where there's a an absolute reliance like if i go and order a laptop a dell laptop lenovo wherever wherever it is how do i know that the chipsets that are put on that board or any other software that be loaded to that board are legitimate yeah how do i get handed a certificate that says that hey when they package this thing up this was the hashes on all the binaries this is what this yeah. guarantee this is as well as when I was in another organization here, another financial organization here in Charlotte, we sent people to China regularly, but we would give them a throwaway laptop. We didn't even try to wipe it. We didn't try to fix it. We, it was literally smashed and broken and put into the garbage. We didn't even give it to like people to play with or goes to a school. It was literally physically broken because we were right. afraid that it would go to some school or something. And then now we yeah. have from and recycled and it didn't really die. So it was, uh, I remember them just smashing these laptops up, but it was cheaper to do that because you'd go over there sometimes they'd ask for the encryption keys for it. They want to get, be able to get into the laptop. So it's just really interesting, dangerous world we live in. Yeah. Agreed. 
And then, so one of the things that that we were looking at is that we saw how penetration tests, well, I have one of our big pharma clients say that, Josh, this is great. I see that we've addressed log4j. We've done some remediation here. Also, we had a pen test that was conducted and we found these different problems. We were able to do lateral movement. This wasn't detected on this platform, this EDR client that, that we had. So we had some remediation options that came from that pen test. And so we had the threat detection engineering team start to build the analytics, how to detect this. Some of it's living off the land and using living off the land binaries, very difficult catch and to be able to see and what to do with it. It looks like legitimate traffic. So for those of you who don't know what living off the land is, you would have an attacker use the actual binaries and the software that's on the host machine just to use it in a malicious way. So you're not going to see a malicious download of something, a C2 connection. They're just going to use what is already installed on that box. And so it'd be very hard to detect that level, that kind of level of abuse. But one of the questions they asked, okay, so we're going to do the remediation. We'll write the new analytics. We're going to put it in and push that out to all our desktops. How can you guarantee that you actually remediated that? And the next time they come in and they do the test again in six months, that the same items are not going to pop up and it's going to go to the board of directors and we're all going to fry because we told them that this was all remediated. And come to find oops, oops, they come in and they test and none of it's remediated or some of it is or some is still there. Whatever the situation may be, we'll have ex- extreme problem in our hands. So we said, how do we cut that down? And I said, well, the only way to do is active testing on that host. And we'd have to do active testing as part of the analytics build, as well as some operational issues that that we were noticing. But the one thing that we wanted to be able to say is that I push this analytic. I'm going to simulate that attack. I want to see it A- to see it and log it, then if it truly is malicious, I want to see it alert. And I want to see it go through the infrastructure and end up in the queue of someone whose job it is to do something about it. So it was one thing to just see if the analytic work, it was to really test the entire detection pipeline. Because what we noticed is that sometimes some ingester somewhere in the cloud stops working. All of a sudden, it's switched from Ceph to JSON for some reason. The SIM's not sending data, whatever it may be. And all of a sudden, you don't have a data. You have no telemetry for a week, sometimes two weeks before you even notice it until you have an incident sometimes. And then all of a sudden, the data was there. So the chief information security officer said, okay, so what are you going to do about it? What is your plan? And so this is when I reached out to your guys and I said, I know you have this product called Blindspot that does breach attack simulation. And it tests for the different things that we're looking for and so forth. If you could take a second, explain to me the difference between penetration testing, breach attack simulation, or purple teaming is really where it fits into. What are those different paradigms? What to know about them? And then how do you go about solving them? And what is the next generation of this. We can't wait six months to test remediation. It's got to be part of the continuous cycle. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's a great... So I'm going to start with the the pen test, which being a person who performs a lot of pen tests and whose company still does a lot of them, I think the pen test absolutely still has its place. The problems that we noticed though with pen tests... So just to level set with everybody, because everybody has different names for these. When I say a penetration test, what I mean is you have permission from a customer to attempt to gain access to a certain part of their environment, whether whatever that is, whatever is in scope, hopefully it's a big scope. But the idea is we are going to start from some 
scenario that is is likely in the customers, like when they look around what they're worried about, am I worried about somebody bringing their own laptop and plugging into the environment and that machine's infected? Am I worried about somebody opening a phishing email and becoming either, either giving up their credentials or becoming infected? Like whatever that is, whatever the scenario is, we start there and then we work our way. Could we get to some targets, some goal inside the organization that they're like, that data is really valuable. If you could demonstrate access to that data, then that would be, that's something we're trying to prevent. So we'd like for you to do that. So what happens is you get a pen test team who starts whatever that, that thing is, and they build their attack paths to get to that goal. If the project is scoped wrong, right? Like if we don't have the right, if we're not looking at the entire organization, we're starting from a weird spot, you're automatically going to need not test a bunch of things. The other thing is that if your goal is too, too narrow, like a lot of organizations, if they don't have a good idea of sample data or they're not allowed to give us access to whatever the data is that's truly valuable, they'll say, try to get domain admin permissions in our Active Directory environment or one of them or something like that, which is fine. But if you have a bunch of Linux systems and they don't participate in that Active Directory environment, my team's not going to touch it because there's very little choice chance that's going to help them on their goal. So we automatically get into these weird things where maybe we're not testing everything that needs to be done or the pen test form is not because limited by the scope, limited by the attack path selection to get to the goal, limited by the time, because you only have a certain amount of money you can allow, right? This isn't something where you can have teams turned loose all the time, every day, testing these things, right? This is probably a once a year thing you're getting done and you execute it. The pen test consultants come up with some findings, some things they think you could do differently to either alert or prevent the attack path from working. And you go about your business and you just come next year. And that that led to your, admit your problem you had with it before was, I have these findings. I think I fixed them. How do I know? We started getting asked to do what didn't have a great name at the time, but I think purple team is the right name for it now. The idea of you're going to have somebody who represents the offensive side, the red team, or sit down with somebody who represents the defense or the blue teamer. So the red and blue is the purple. And the idea is that the red team person can show them like, hey, listen, this is a way, let's go to the living off the land example, right? There are all kinds of little utilities and and programs inside of Windows that do things that Windows needs done that can be leveraged by an attacker. So for example, there is a assertutil.exe binary. Insert your, insert, when it downloads the X509 certificate and had basic yes. for it over to an executable, I thought that was cool how you could do that with it. Yeah. So that particular binary, which is a Microsoft signed, Microsoft made file, allows you to download content from the internet and encode and decode base64 stuff, which is a great way to sneak payloads past filters. So it turns out that I don't have to drop a crazy piece of malware I've written to do those things. I just use CertUtil. And it, now that means on the defender side, we have to look out for what is normal CertUtil and what isn't. And a pen test, you do that once a year. So it's really hard to know from that sample size. Is that like the whole population of what CertUtil could be used for or whatever? But you so pen test is- Move CertUtil from all the machines. Yeah, you can't do that because then it would break stuff, right? So that's the other thing. So now you're back to alerting on it or trying to figure out other ways to manage some of these things. So we started getting asked to run these exercises. And um, when our consultants would do that, like to do these purple teams, you have to really do the activity, right? It's just like on a pen test to really execute these attacks or these actions because we need to see how the customer environment handles it, right? Whether it's a desktop that a person uses or it's a server that runs an application we worry about, whatever it is, we want to see how that that is that way that's set up. How do What data do you get from that? What settings are on the endpoint or on the network segment that will prevent that action? Like we need to know all those things. And then you get into, okay, now it's time to flip it over and to prepare this. So the breach and attack simulation tool market 
is the idea that you take that activity and you might not have access to a red teamer. So you're essentially going to buy the red team knowledge from a breach and attack simulation vendor. They're going to show up and you're going to install this thing. And then it's going to do the red team side. And then it's going to try to show you what it did so that your blue team can figure that out. What we we have came into it from a service provider capability, though, wanting to run this as a service with our partners and with our customers. And so that they didn't have to worry about the red team side. We can handle that for you. Like we're going to go do that. So whatever they're worried about, we can create that activity and then we can see how the tools handle it, make some recommendations and do that. And we observed a bunch of gaps there, which led us to build the blind spot tool. The first one was that we obviously, the ability to automate the attack activity is key because not only does it mean it's faster for us to run when it's time to do like an official workshop, but it also means that the customer can do this on their own self-service without having to have the red team there, which instantly makes it cheaper from, you don't have to always have the consultant on site to do the work. So now you can, we can talk about doing that. The other thing that we noticed was the ability to collect the attack data and the response from that attack data. So we knew what ran on the endpoints, what kind of data had and all that sort of stuff so that we could express it to the blue teamers who a lot of times don't get access to, who just don't have this knowledge, right? It's not your job. Your job is to write really crazy SIM queries and stuff. It's not to know exactly how to execute like a process injection attack or something, right? That's a red team capability. Not that you shouldn't learn those things, but it's frequently not a skill set that the customer's team would have. So that's our job. We come with that. And so the breach and attack simulation, the next thing that we observed that we had is we had a, a problem where we had so much data. It's what's really cool, I think, about breach and attack simulation compared to even pen testing, even when you're really good about giving all these logs to the customers of everything you did, that never really gets matched up one-to-one with what they observe at least not in my experience. So breach and attack simulation, especially when done in a collaborative manner, like in a tool like Blindspot, allows you to see 100% of the offensive. And so now we know not only the stuff that we missed, but of the stuff that happened, did the logs or the alerts that showed up in front of the analysts in the console, does that match what actually happened? Does that give us a full enough picture or do we need more information? It's really great. I always laugh when I see statistics about cyber attacks when they're like, oh, our firewall stopped 87,000 attacks today, which is an impressive sounding number, but I'm pretty sure it's not 87,000 attacks. You might've blocked 87,000 packets or something. Yeah, I was going to say 87,000 packets. But then also, we don't actually know the total number of packets we should have blocked. It might be much higher. If it's 87,000 out of 87,000, that's a great job. If it's 87,000 out of 800,000, that's a terrible job. And we really have a problem here. And as we built out Blindspot, a big part of our, of our of the goal of that tool is not only to make it faster and cap- and make the team capable of like self-service recreating this activity to make sure that the tools still work today or that a change I made didn't break something or a change I made that I thought I have a theory on how to detect this better. I'm going to make this change. I'm going to run the simulation. We're going to see that happen on an endpoint. Now we're going to see our alert fired and we're good. I think that was really important, but we needed the way to help like folks on those teams express what is a ton of data to folks who might not be technical at all. So that's really where I think breach and attack simulation tooling like Blindspot can really succeed, right? Is you can make that something that all of a sudden you can have some kind of a graphic image that can dis- that can help you depict what is otherwise a really tough top subject to talk about to a non-technical stakeholder, you can now suddenly have a way to, to talk about that. Um, yes, sir. We used CertUtil to download a base64 image. You made that an executable. We moved lat- laterally. We also downloaded Cobalt Strike. Oh, man. Gone. Yeah. All that. Like, what is all that? What mean? is all that? Yeah. And so how do you represent that? And I think we tried to represent that a lot in presentations and reports. But to do it in a UI, I think the way you represent a lot of those, and we've done it, is like the piping. And it shows where the event that gets generated and how it goes along the process. So you have an event that gets generated on a host. 
first thing is how is that host configured? What activity is it designed yes. to actually record? Where is the logs being generated or is being stored at from that? And then you would generate these events and there's some actions you would assume would occur that somehow it's going to show up over in your Splunk instance, or it may show up for your managed detection and response. And then just seeing A, the data flow, but just B, really understanding that these map to certain threat actors. I know you have one, for instance, where you do the top 10 ransomware TTPs. You run that on a host to say, out of the top TTPs, the TTPs that we have, the tactics, techniques, and procedures that attackers use, which one, which ones are part of them, the most popular ransomware families. And let's test our host to see if we would detect it, if it would even be logged, some of that activity. And we've had some really surprising results. I know we started to take multiple EDR products into a lab and started running them against the analytics that we have. And we saw some are better than others and some you need it configured in one way. Some things, there's nothing you can do. That product has all the analytics built into it. I can't add to it. I can't even see. CrowdStrike's an example. They have all the analytics that are proprietary that's in it. And so a lot of times you can't see what they're doing. You hope they detect it and so forth. And even if it didn't, what would you really do about it other than yeah, and put a ticket in for it, depending on where in the product it's at. And a big part of, of what we like doing is like, we will see that all the time, right? Where there are very, because a lot of these providers, maybe this is correct, view their detection analytics as the proprietary edge they have over their competitors. Like we do a better job detecting the attackers and it's part of our proprietary whatever that, and that I understand from the perspective of that's how they keep the, their secret sauce. But it also means if you're the defender, and there's just a switch in the console that says block ransomware-like behavior. You're like, well, that sounds pretty good, but what does that actually mean? Our goal is to do a lot of ransomware-like behavior so you can be like, oh, okay, it'll do this, but it won't do that. And I think that's important as you go forward to have a way of what does that really mean to me? Because if it doesn't do this thing, then I'm going to either find a different tool that does, or I'm going to supplement it with a different data source, right? Because I need visibility into this thing. And if this EDR doesn't have it, I just, I need to know that. To your point, our goal is this shouldn't be a surprise when the attack happens. This should be something we figure out during these sessions. So if something bad does happen, if a threat actor does come, you already know, I'm not going to see any of this activity. We haven't gotten that resolved yet, but I do know what this looks like. And I do know how to hunt for that now. I think the fact that you can finally put, what one of the problems we observe a lot of customers having is they'll come up with a great idea for a new detection for a problem, right? For a common attack or a TP, as you mentioned, right? Using the MITRE attack framework there. What we observe a lot though, is that they will come up with a Splunk query or a whatever, whatever they're using, and it'll sound pretty good. But then they'll get it filtered to the point where like they filter out all the obvious false positives. And then there'll still be some stuff in there. And they kind of stop because they're afraid if they do too much more filtering, they'll miss the real thing when it happens. In the case of trying to get out the rest of these that they think are false positives, but they don't want to make the search, which means when they make that alert go to live to production, and let's say it generates 30 alerts a day. That's a lot of traffic. That's a lot. That's 30 alerts that a human being now has to look at every day. And if you do that several times, now all of a sudden we're talking about like, there are hundreds of alerts in there that are probably false positives that are just churning through your SOC analysts, right? And they just don't have time to do it. So our goals are let's put real data out there so we can maybe tighten that down. You're always going to have this battle between there's still some false positives and maybe a few false negatives. Like we're trying to get that as close to zero, right? As we can. And I think the having actual activity in the environment that represents this is what an attack looks like is invaluable there. Cause now you're like, okay, good. I know that I filtered that other noise out and I still got the attack simulation that we ran. And so that's, I think, really important. I think it's not just a detection and response testing, but also your ability to seed your threat team. So for instance, if you're going to have somebody come and do threat hunting, and they're going to do some analysis. A, do I have all the data I need? 
B, generate that activity on that host, and that should show up in your record set. If it doesn't, you have a problem. You're not collecting exactly right. You don't have visibility. And we've had hunt teams where they would do these hunt operations, and they would say, we don't see anything. But comes up, comes to find out half of the environment wasn't even logging or the, they didn't have access right. to the data. They didn't have visibility. It was just yeah. some shortcoming. Oh, yeah, that we don't have that element of data. We have this. but And the hunt team doesn't know. And so I think there's it's really good to say, let me, I am going to create my hunt use cases. This is my theory, and this is what I'm going to do. Let me generate some data related to that to see just the infrastructure is picking it up and the logging is making it. Does it. Is it even something that's there? And can I generate o- almost my own type hunt artifacts that I would pick up? And once I do that, then I know, okay, then everything's set up right. And now I have a, a better confidence that my hunt will be successful. So I, th- I think that's another use case to it as well. Being able, I remember the Marine Corps, you'd walk into the con ops and, and this is where the tent is. It's got all the officers and everybody. And the first thing you do when you take over shift is they had a report they handed you. What's green? What nets are up? Which ones are down? Which ones are active? What units are where? So it's complete situation awareness when you go to take over on your shift. And one of the things that you'll notice is there's always seems to be something broken or not working right. Or right. Some radios down or some unit mm-hmm. out of contact or whatever it may be. There's always something like that. But we had a way of testing and we would have a report on shift change that say these are green, these are red. That was our dashboard. But where is that in in IT cybersecurity detection and response where you walk in in the morning, you get a report and it tells you, yes, we've been ingesting logs all night. We've had this. We've had that. This data source didn't make it. This one is still up and running. You'd have to do that from a human process perspective. But you needed, you you remember WhatsApp Gold? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah would ping. It was really ICMP echo, right? So ICMP yep. echo to a bunch of machines and whatever's up, it gets ICMP echo reply. And so that was really the basic of it. And I think it went to SNMP traps later on. But how do you do something like a WhatsApp goal that's a network testing, but doing it for detection analytics and seeing it go all the way from you're generating on events on that host to your security operations team is seeing it. Also, in many cases, we do manage detection and response. So it's much easier to allow us to do the level one, level two SOC analysis. And then we do curation and intelligence. And then we send back a true positive to our customers. So out of all those thousands of alerts that they get, they only get curated true positives that they have to deal with. So it cuts down the alert volume and the fatigue, as well as the next step of that, that last mile, so to speak, the contextualization, going up where that machine is in the CMDB, what is the risk that causes to me, is what the internal IR teams can can take over and continue to drive. The only problem, I think this hybrid model works phenomenal of doing managed detection response with companies that they're not going to build their own 24 by 7 SOC with 20 people. And it's just way too expensive. Their job is making cars or finance or loans or whatever it is. Right. They want to do their business. They just want us to be able to protect it, manage it, and so forth. But the problem is that you can have some procedures between you and your customers, but if you don't have the active testing element of it, things could break and you never know it until there's an incident or there's a problem. And I also feel like attestation was always hard. When I came up, a lot of times cyber, we had auditors that would come in and they would start off with stuff that was simple. And they would say, okay, here's the termination list for the last uh, six months. We mm-hmm. want to do a random set, pick out 10 employees that have been terminated, and we want to see if they still have access in Active Directory. Sure. So you'd have to go look in Active Directory, pull those accounts, and boy, if one was still in there and it wasn't disabled, that was it. You had fried for that. You had a finding for that. 
But where is that level of audit scrutiny with these detection controls? If I was an auditor working in, I say, okay, did you had these five vulnerabilities or these five findings in the last pen test? Did you fix those? Yes, here's the analytics. This is what it looks like. And so I don't know what any of that, how does an auditor yeah. know what any of that is? How do they make a decision on it? But if I have a tool set, I know that can run that same detection script on that host, match it to that finding, let's just yeah. say cobalt strike lateral movement, and I can match those two, I have some attestation. I have a tool set and some intelligence with the service that I'm using to answer that question. And it's not reliant on the answers that the in-house team tell me and then my interpretation of what that means. I have a really good right. set that can actually visualize what some of that means and what it does and what's the improvement. I've always thought those were three major aspects, really, of a solution you provided. And just the ability to see that full spectrum is it seems to be exciting. And that's why I see where they, it went from the red teaming, blue teaming, purple yep. teaming guys on the ground, which you still need in many organizations. But if you want to have a rapid benefit of that, you want to be able to do that kind of activity quickly, do it at scale and doing it at a smaller footprint as a managed service offering. It's where we specialize. We're able to put those analytics yeah. in. We're able to work with several different customers. We know what works, what doesn't from the pen test perspective. And I think this is where we're showing some of the true value of some of the tools that, that they may find. You never know what is detected and what's not. I'll give you an example. I got a filter on Google that anything for Joshua Nicholson, I'm going to get an email, which is really crazy because I still get a notice from Google two, three times a week that somebody named Joshua Nicholson was on Google. Most of the time he was arrested or he, there was some <laughs> criminal with the same <laughs> really encouraging. But at the same time, I launched this podcast. It's on the internet. It's on my LinkedIn. Yet I never get an alert for that at all. And that was on wow. purpose. And that's got my right. name out there. Yet- <laughs> The alert that is looking for my name does never fire, but it seems to always fire on some news right. article of, of somebody getting right. arrested. So how do you ensure that the control you have in place is even working? Because I could have sworn yeah. that thing would have sent me alert. I said, it, it sends me alert every time somebody has a DUI with the name Josh when they right. died. And it was an obituary. I get oh. died a couple of times now because they had four or five right. Josh Nicholson's. And so that's what concerns me that we you may spend a lot of money on a product, tool sets, analytics, and a service, and it not be there for you when you need it. You have no idea if it really works effectively. And then when you look at a lot of these clients have less and less staff, it's harder and harder. There's more and more to deal with. You take that towards with the attack surface reduction capabilities where you're taking vulnerability management and you infuse it with threat intelligence in order to come up with a comprehensive way of doing risk management within mm -hmm. an organization. I remember in the Cisco world, when I was working on the government side, after I got out of the Marine Corps, I did some government work and I was wor working for Marine Forces Reserve. I was one of the head network engineers down there in New Orleans. And you'd have these IAVAs come out and it would be the government vulnerability thing. And it would say that you need to patch the, this iOS, you need to update all these routers to this version because there's this vulnerability in your iOS. But the, the what would kill me is that the iOS was related to software we don't run. It was like ISIS or OSPF, or we were EIGRP and it's for OSPF. We'd never turn that service, that software on. Why do I have to patch the uh, iOS on there and take these routers and infrastructure down when I, it's not even enabled? You couldn't export it. It doesn't even run. Yeah. But the code base on, in the iOS actually has the vulnerable OSPF routing 
protocol, for instance, on it. Mm -hmm. So there's where the, it gets into the mitigation versus the countermeasure versus the actual having to patch some of these things. So I love how that program helps inform, okay, what is important to me on, I want to attack simulation here. I want to be able to see the output of this when this changes. Not to mention, I think we're seeing very disparate desktop systems. You would used to think there was a gold image, right? This mm. is the perfect world. You had a gold image. It had all the regular software on it, same version, same PDF version, Adobe, everything. And it's almost like the security team still think that way, that all their desktops really were just stamped out of the machine right. at the same time. Right. And none of them were. There's different right. batches. And all of a sudden, one third party did deployed these desktops. Another did. This one had an old image, didn't have this configured. There, there was no, there's no real matching. And it's really difficult to say, how do these desktops respond in these different situations when you have no idea? You have no standard to test against. When I was at New Orleans Public Schools, I was a consultant that was brought in there for on this contract. And it was really interesting where the parents wanted to support their kids' educational needs. And so they would go out to Best Buy and they would go buy a computer and bring it to the place. Every computer was different. We had HPs, we had Dells, it did have different sound cards. This one had different modems or everything was different. It had a different operating system. Some had McAfee, some had Norton. It had everything in the world that you can imagine. It was a mess. And before mm -hmm. we got there, they put them all on the network. So it was all hot and active in the network. It wasn't like we had time to, to address any of that. And so we saw that was a really good, it was a good, really good reason that they wanted to be able to provide these PCs. Sounds like great intentions, but they had no idea how that impacted our ability to actually manage and protect the right. environment at the same time. Yeah. It was so different. Right. And I had to script the uninstall, this was using batch files at the time, the uninstallation of Norton and all these other products and deploy an antivirus product right away. <laughs> right. Panda antivirus at the moment. Ooh, Ooh that's, that's a deep cut. I haven't heard of Panda in a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, and this was... Yeah, it was 12, 13 years ago, if not more. It was probably 15 years ago when Panda was really coming out. And we didn't know much about it, but that's what the school system had picked. And it was really interesting to try and deploy antivirus on 5,000 desktops over the weekend <laughs> and all the yeah. challenge of that. And they come to find out where they go to provision it, the license does not will not get uh, approved until the next board meeting. So oh, no. you can install the product and it's got like this base installation, but any of the signatures that come down, you're not going to get until you pay for this. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. That was extremely difficult. It's just, at the same time, they had they wanted to stand up these Exchange 5.5 cluster service. And so it was mm -hmm. really state-of-the-art. E-rate e was the government funding to put internet everywhere. And so E-rate's going to build this four-way Exchange 5.5 cluster server. And this was, golly, 15 years ago. Real expensive hardware you had to buy on it and it was great. And it was all for kids just to check their email about. Right. I forgot <laughs> right. the population in New Orleans Public Schools. It was like maybe 15,000, something like that. And wow. it was 15, 20,000. I'm not sure. But it was just for kids to, to check their email. And I remember we, we recommended we need to put antivirus on here. Antigen was a product I loved at the time. So we need to put anti, we need to put antigen or some product similar to that on the SMTP store or we're just going to get nailed. No, that's that you got six months to the next board meeting for that. So you're just going to have to run the mail system without antivirus or anti-spam wow. protection. And I estimated it would take a week for the system to get compromised. It took about four hours. Four right? hours, yeah. Yeah, and they had, <laughs> I had to shut the system down because it was propagating spam all over the place. We had third-party right. 
fighters getting hit. We had the Melissa, I love you. That was going all over. Oh, I remember that. I love you. This PBS script that all of a sudden you're getting emails. I love you. I love you. I love you. (laughs) All over the place. And so it just brought this four way. Each of the nodes, this four nodes that you had, each of them had quad processors. And that was 15 years ago. So it was highly expensive. Tons yeah, of- that was a lot. And it was yeah. made useless. Without <laughs> Could not scale to handle the volume of malicious activity that was happening on that. So it's, uh, it's interesting some of those organizational challenges and sometimes how creative we have to get with solving problems. And what are the limitations we have? We used to have where we, when I was at Booz Allen, so I know you know this, but Prior to Deep Seas, we're we're actually a company, we're a spin out from Booz Allen Hamilton on the managed threat services side, on the commercial side. And Booz Allen's a big defense contractor. We do a lot of government work, a lot of classified top secret stuff. But I was on the commercial side and we used to do compromise assessments. We still do. Where a company is going to buy another company and they want to know, is it owned? Is there a threat actor in there? What's the situation? How bad is it? I'm about to buy this company. And so we would do the compromise assessment. We'd look out on the dark web. Do you have any credential dumps? There's any configurations, that kind of stuff. And so that was a standard offer and it showed a lot of benefit. Problem though, is that when we did a lot of these mergers and acquisitions, we'd do the acquisition. We would rely on that merged entity to tell us how their configuration was because it's not legal day one. I can't, I can't even have access to some of the systems, but one thing nobody ever tested was, is the security controls they have in their organization actually working? We had this one merger we did where the customer had CrowdStrike. And they told us, yeah, we have CrowdStrike EDR and all the hosts. We're fine. So when we merge over, you're a CrowdStrike shop as well for this big farmer that we were working at. And so this should be a seamless operation, no problem. So legal day one comes over. We now get access to their CrowdStrike instance. We're able to see it. And we're saying there's a problem because the to the quarantine button for us to be able to quarantine hosts is grayed out. It's not there. And uh, so we go to ask them, say, I think it's a permission problem. Can you give me our team or our team permissions to do quarantines? Oops. Actually, we never bought the module the software <laughs> that allows quarantining. It's like, wait a minute. During due diligence, you told me you've been doing IR for two years here. And if you have an infected host or a compromise, you would quarantine them. Right. And he says, yes, we just never did. So you never in two years had ever had the need to quarantine a machine. So you never got any alerts off of it. Oh, we got alerts all the time. We just didn't know really what it meant. So we thought we marched them as false positive. Wow. Wow. I've never seen (laughs) So you neutered the CrowdStrike box is what you did. And you told us when we were acquiring or the company I was working with was acquiring you that you had quarantine capabilities. And it was all a lie. You didn't have quarantine, but you didn't do this. And it was to sound like they were more mature than they were because as far as the merger was going together, we wanted to make sure they had a job. And they just figured you'll find out when everything's it's too late. It's all done. Yeah, it's too late. Yeah. You'll find out. And then having to go back to the project team and say, no, you need a couple tens of thousand dollars more to get this quarantine function. And that hits the roof. So it's okay. How do in the future do we, we can do a compromise assessment, but if we did a breach attack simulation, we can also see that these events are being triggered, the, the, what's coming, mm-hmm. how they're responding to it. And we would say, hey, that host, go ahead and quarantine. And then we would be able to flush out these deficiencies. But without something like that, it became just a real challenge. Sure. Ben, I really thank you for your time here. We're running over. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again. I think we talked a lot about penetration testing. What's the difference between that and breach attack simulation, how that whole 
paradigm is shifting to purple team testing rather than just these static penetration tests. And uh, you were successfully telling us the differences between them. And I just want to thank you for being on the show. And I encourage everybody that's listening, please support us and hit subscribe, follow the show. And I look forward to talking to everybody soon. Thanks, Ben, for joining us. It's been very enlightful. It was a pleasure, Josh. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks and be secure. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.